That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs, and welcome to The Great America Show. Delighted to have you with us. You don't need me to tell you the country is in great peril. The Marxist Dems managed to put two of the most feeble and inept people in the country into the two most powerful jobs in our government. And they've done what any rational would have expected them to do. The impaired puppet president does as his Marxist masters tell him. Can there be any doubt today that the Bidens are running a family business that might as well be a direct subsidiary of communist China? Kamala Harris is simply lost. She's talentless with her words always failing her. The best she can never do with her words is to make a salad. Seldom does she make sense, no matter the setting. These two are incomprehensible and inexplicable, but they are the faces of our government, whether in domestic policy or foreign policy. Foreign policy where they and their second-rate national security team flail and fail repeatedly. With China's Xi Jinping and Moscow with his great strategic partner Vladimir Putin, both in hours-long meetings on how to extricate Russia from the jaws of death and defeat in Ukraine, while creating a new anti-American, anti-Europe, anti-freedom world order, with the emphasis on order in their authoritarian vision of a better future, so-called. Biden and Harris are the officials who have no answers to Putin and Xi. As more died daily in Ukraine and Xi and Putin plot the end of Western civilization, without, it seems, resistance from Biden-Harris. The two who have presided over America for the past 26 months, a reign of what has amounted to economic and social devastation. Open borders, rampant illegal immigration, raging crime rates, runaway inflation, massive government deficits and debt, and all we hear about from the Biden regime is CRT, EID, and ESG. And suddenly, the economy is also hit with a banking crisis, a crisis caused in part by Biden-Harris's rabid federal spending and mindless policies at home and abroad. Our guest today is a great American and friend. Our guest is Steve Bannon, the hugely popular host of the hugely successful podcast, Steve Bannon's War Room. Steve, welcome. Great to have you with us. And let's start with the banking crisis that is now crippling the economy. We've heard barely a peep from Joe Biden, who some credit as the author of this crisis with all of his mad spending and talent-free administration. Lou, we got uh, three minutes of uh, Biden, what, at 9 o'clock Monday morning, to talk to us about the deplorables in MAGA essentially bailing out Silicon Valley Bank and, 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 and all $19 trillion of deposits throughout the nation. And we had Yellen, I think, do some testimony this morning for the in front of the uh, Senate Finance Committee. And uh, that's it. Powell's been quiet, essentially, gave a little testimony the other day. It's, um, and the reason is this stuff justified. The banking system is in a crisis. 
I would actually say it's melting down globally. You've had the Swiss government, but through Swiss National Bank, their central bank, put you know $55 billion mm-hmm. to bail out Credit Suisse. Uh, you've had the deplorables back up $19 trillion of deposits, including I think five or $6 trillion of uninsured deposits. It's a, it's a crisis and they're looking for uh, basically taxpayers in Switzerland and the United States to do the bailout. And they're lying to people about what's caused this. Uh, they don't want to really face any scrutiny and it's only going to get worse. This is a role in, look, you've had Larry Fink, uh, Ken Griffin and Carl Icahn, three Wall Street oligarchs, essentially agree with Lou, with you and I over the last 48 hours. They say this is a rolling crisis, uh, the system's collapsing, and, and Ken Griffin sounds like a, a newborn fire-breathing populist about how these uh, how these bailouts are, are, are totally unfair. They're unfair, uh, and there is division amongst the oligarchs, of course. Uh, those who are on the left side of the country, that is uh, the, <laughs> the epicenter there in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, that little community wants bailout after bailout. They don't only want bailouts for the insured depositors. They want uh, bailouts for the big depositors beyond the 250000 FDIC uh, limit. They want bailouts for ownership uh, for uh, these banks, Silicon uh, Valley, uh, Signature. Uh, it's And now the numbers are, you know, we're starting, as you suggested, going to uh, Credit Suisse. That $55 billion you're talking about that the National Bank of, uh, of Switzerland put up, that that's money they were very reluctant to mention they had and would put, deploy for the benefit uh, of, of Credit Suisse. Uh, this is a peculiar moment in history. And Janet Yellen uh, assuring everybody that everybody's going to be taken care of. Uh, moral hazard uh, is at bay and, uh, and, and fading quickly, isn't it? Lou, you've been through a couple of these, including the big, you know, the internet uh, capital markets equity meltdown in the late 90s, early 2000s, the, uh, of course, the financial crisis of 2008. I think this is going to pale in comparison. I think this is going to make those pale in comparison. I think we're at the beginning of, as I've been saying, a a financial crisis, capital markets crisis that's going to rival the late 1920s, early 1930s. Um, And the reason is we just, we had negative, we had free money for so long, right? After the, the, we never took care of the fundamental problems of 2008. We just kept, inter- the central banks just got together in a cartel and kept interest rates incredibly low for so long. And we're paying the price on top of uh, Biden's out of control spending. The first two years of the Biden regime will go down like Herbert Hoover's administration. I mean, th- th- remember, it's Biden's spending. It's the over the top when we had aggregate demand back. It's the insane ten trillion dollars that he went out and spent with collaborationist Republicans and Mitch McConnell agreeing with him that we spent that 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 started the inferno that didn't roll through. So I call it Biden spending to Biden's inflation, right? That got out of control to Biden bonds. What he did is is he crushed government security. So on, on the evening of three November of 2020, the ten-year Treasury. Uh, was at 0.86% right. under President Trump, 0.86%. That's blown through 4, 4%, you know, here recently. And as you know, the difference in going from zero or from, from 0.8 to 4 is much 
bigger than going from like five to nine or, or 10 to 14. It's, 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 you know, a logarithmic. It's insane. And that's yeah, me- what's destroyed these bonds, which all these guys, the unrealized, and we can't get a straight answer. The unrealized losses on, on the balance sheet of banks were told by the FDIC is $600 billion for on government securities. There's other analysis out there that's over $2 trillion. That's what took down Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank was not taken down by its wokeness, although, trust me, on the margin that hurt in the bank. And it wasn't really a bank. It was a, it was a country club hedge fund. But what took it down was Biden's inflation and uh, the hot money deposits and that their portfolio was absolutely destroyed because they bought 10-year treasuries at, you know, 1%, and now treasuries are at 4%, and those bonds are, you know, half of their value. So, and this is all over the country. This is 1,000% not about wokeness. It is about Biden's economic policies, his spending, his inflation, what he's done to, uh, to interest rates. And, and on top of it all, Lou, for him to present a $6.8 trillion budget last week, just shows you how out of tune he is and how in his in your face he is about the financial crisis economic crisis in front of us yeah that's a, that was a spending blueprint uh, for a marxist who means to destroy this country and uh, everyone needs to understand what it is and, and nothing is a better uh, to me uh, a great uh, avatar for all of this is silicon valley uh, bank uh, it had only one member on the board who had investment banking experience. Uh, we're, ta- we're, we're talking about a bank that didn't even approximate, a, as far as I'm concerned, a commercial lending institution that had any Lou, concept of ratios. You talk about the board and the supervisor. They, their chief risk officer left a year before. I think they understood what was happening. The chief risk officer left a year before, sold a couple of million dollars worth of stock, and went on their merry way. They were without a, a senior risk officer in charge of anything. And of course, all the other risk officers in London and everywhere else were totally woke, you know, about their selection, the, the diversity, equity, inclusion. Well, but your point about the board, I was actually shocked. I mean, the board, and, and by the way, board, Lou, it's not like the old days. It's not that they just didn't only had one banker. It's the fact that they had, everybody else was like a flute player. Or, there were no industrialists. There were no senior level business managers. I mean, it wasn't a serious board. It was a, it was a totally woke board. I love the fact that one uh, one of those board uh, members decided, when uh, becoming anxious about the crisis that was unfolding for the bank and then subsequently for the country, uh, made the decision to go to the uh, the Shinto uh, uh, shrine and, and to start uh, meditating and praying. Uh, which I guess would be one approach to crisis and uh, and strain uh, that you have been at least uh, partially culpable uh, in creating. Uh, it, it, this is a bank that is absolutely filled with, uh, brimming over with uh, diversity and uh, ineptitude. It is something, if you will, of a minor shadow of what the Biden regime itself uh, is comprised. This is a board that has no idea that it's a yeah. you know responsible for a bank. Well, no fiduciary responsibility. And, and look, here's the thing: they they mock and ridicule. The thing that upset me about Silicon Valley Bank is that here are the people that deplatform and debank uh, the uh, the deplorables of MAGA in the entire Trump movement. Yet when they panic, what do they want? They want the deplorables. They want MAGA to bail them out. This is a taxpayer bailout. Now they they hide it. 
they're saying it's going to be FDIC fees taken from member banks, which means it's just going to be passed through to the customer. So everybody's got a checking account. Everybody's got a savings account. Any services you use at a bank at all, you notice the bank service fees are always going up. That is to that is to basically underwrite and backstop the deposits, the uninsured deposits at these banks. So so the people in the country, taxpayers, citizens in this nation, are underwriting these bailouts, and that's why they go about it so so willy nilly. But I I think the arrogance, because remember, here's the thing: when they talk about oh all these companies, these startup companies, they were all missed payroll. That's all a lie. Every one of those companies has a venture capitalist uh, sponsor. The venture capitalist could have given them a credit, easily given them a credit facility over the weekend. They could draw down on to make payroll and to pay operations. The venture capitalists didn't want to do that. They want the deplorables. They want MAGA to bail them out so that they don't have to put more capital in and get lower returns. And the management doesn't want to do it because it'll dilute their equity interest. It's a complete and total scam, a thousand percent total scam. It never had to happen. When the hot money depositors left and, and they and they, and they, and they wanted enough money to make payroll for the bank to afford them, it's not important. They had venture no. capitalist sponsors. The venture capitalist, the venture capitalist could extend additional credit lines, credit facilities, and taking care of their of their uh, of their uh, companies, which they should, they have a fiduciary responsibility. Absolutely, the venture capitalists that got on the phone call. It took forty two billion dollars out before they told anybody, right? They took forty two billion dollars out of this bank, and then they told the world, "Oh, you know, everybody ought to go get their money out of this thing. It could be shaky." I believe they did that, and I keep saying it, and they keep lighting me up. But I say they did that on material, non public information, and to me, that is just as bad as insider trading. Yeah, I'm not sure that they could differentiate about insider trading, to be honest with you, Steve. I think those people were so woven into the Silicon culture that they couldn't distinguish between a, a, a VC uh, a, a disbursement, uh, a payroll, uh, and uh, a credit line. Because in point of fact, it was one enormous, diverse, woke organism that is now bared and is all of its ugliness uh, there in Silicon Valley and within the regional banking system itself, because we've seen 30 banks put on watch. We've got six of them on, uh, let's call it careful watch. Uh, we have seen the second and third uh, largest uh, bankruptcies uh, of a bank uh, in, in the country's history. It is simply a, a, a massive a dam, the gates of which have been raised by this administration, and money is flying through those gates, uh, pouring through those gates, and flooding the economy. We are looking at one of the most perilous moments, I believe, uh, in the country's history because of the condition in which we find ourselves and the people upon whom we must depend uh, to manage and guide us through it. It's um, they're in a real dilemma right now because uh, you saw the ECB raised rates fifty percent to to go after inflation. Right. The Fed, because of Biden spending and them going along with it, monetizing this debt is now jammed. Uh, inflation is still out of control. Core inflation for how you live. Core inflation is obviously killing people because it's ten, twelve percent on you know on on food, on rent, those types of things. The um, and so they're going to have a decision next week. Whether they go after inflation, or if they don't go on inflation and, and, and kick rates up, they're just going to destroy the bonds more, and they're going to expose more unrealized gains 
Because remember, the scam right now is they're lending against these bonds at face value. When the bonds are trading at, you know, 30 cents on the dollar, they're trading at one-third mm-hmm. face value at best, So, which is another scam. They are banking on right now, Lou, the Republicans not stepping up here, which they're not. They're being and they're being kowtowed or they're being browbeaten. I said you can't say anything because you cause a bank run. You can't say anything. The Republicans here, I think, on this have been have been awful. They have not come forward and laid out exactly why no no taxpayer bailouts whatsoever can't happen. And that would make the Biden administration come back and, and think through uh, real uh, you know make decisions on on real solutions and real remedies. Right now, they're playing with the people. You know, they're playing with house money. They're playing with the with the taxpayers' money. Uh, but yeah. the Fed's in a real jam. They've got to make a decision to go after inflation. If they don't do that, uh, if they raise rates uh, to go after inflation, they're going to kill these bonds even more and expose more of these zombie banks are going to start going belly up. So this is all Biden's policy. Remember, it went from Biden spending to Biden inflation to the Biden bonds, right, that crushed, that dropped in value, to the Biden banks, the zombie banks. And I don't know how they're going to get out, out from under it. And uh, if they go down the path they've been going, the Republican Party shouldn't be collaborationists. Mitch McConnell already is guilty with these 15 or 16 Republicans that, that passed the omnibus bill, that, that did build back there. Everybody, every Republican that voted for any of these spending programs from uh, Biden, which many of them did, the Republican Senate, are, are just as guilty as the Democrats in this. We have a Federal Reserve, for crying out loud, that has a balance sheet still of $8.4 trillion. They've been trying to run it off uh, ever since Biden got into office. And they can't move because of inflation, because of all of the dislocation in this this, uh, economy and our markets. Uh, And and I want to remind everybody, uh, and this is not a partisan statement, this is just to map what has happened under this... uh, this puppet president uh, and his uh, Marxist acolytes, inflation was below 2% when Joe Biden took office. And here we are uh, by the consumer price index uh, with inflation at 6% and well above by 300% that the Fed's target for inflation. Your thoughts about what that presupposes? Let's, let's go back. Even in 19, if you look at because the, 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 the when Biden took office, included all the fiasco around the pandemic. If you go back to 19, the last full year of the Trump golden age economically, I think inflation was under zero. It was under 1%. Right, right. Wages were increasing by blue collar workers 11%. You had 10, you had 10% wage, roughly 9 to 10% wage increases, real, not nominal, real wage increases for workers. With virtually zero inflation, virtually zero interest rates, uh, you know, very low interest rates, it was a golden age. I mean, this yeah, is should, why. And we should point out. hate Trump and hate the sound of his voice that said, hey, he, gave you, he only gave you four years of peace and prosperity. He yeah. ain't looking so bad right now. I mean, the Biden thing shows you this. You, you, you and I have talked about it. Just to pull the camera back for a second, people have to understand what was the big shift? What it, one was a different philosophy. This philosophy is called modern monetary theory, which which deems that deficits don't matter, that you continue to run up. And that's what you saw here, you know, with Biden, with all this massive spending. And now this budget he gave us the other day, 6.8, not that it will be passed, but it basically is worse than the CBO projected. It will it would have um, $2 trillion deficits in perpetuity. 
I mean, the insanity of this thing is not, these are not only not reasonable people. It, what they're putting forward is madness. And you can see in the meltdown of the financial system that every day they just lie, it's the best economy in 40 years. But no, the economy's in meltdown. Inflation's out of control. Interest rates now are going to have to increase to, 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 to take down inflation. That means unemployment. Or you're going to continue to crush government securities, and you're going to expose the weaknesses in the, in the banking system. And very quickly, the peasants are going to say, no more. If you vote to bail out anybody, I'm going to turf you out of office in perpetuity. You're gone. So we're heading towards, as I said in my CSPAC speech, we have a convergence of a financial and economic crisis converging now with a geopolitical crisis on the Eurasian landmass. And once those two, con- and they're kind of coming together, once they converge and conflate, we're at the early stages of World War III, and this is where things are going to spin out of control. And it'll be outside of the control of the United States to control events. That's one of the things I think most people intuitively have thought since World War II and grown up, whether you're a baby boomer or even younger, that the United States can always control events. Well, we're in a situation now that I think you're seeing that we don't control events. And this is what happens when you have managed decline in a country driven by its elites. Yeah, I I would only quibble with the word managed. We're in decline, but I don't think managed uh, is, uh, (laughs) is entirely accurate because we don't have anyone capable in any of our major institutions of managing uh, even growth, let alone decline. Uh, we are in a leadership crisis, whether, and, it's, and it's showing up most vividly right now in our banking system and our banking regulatory system. Uh, and certainly anyone paying attention to what is happening in this country with an open border to the South, wide open, the fentanyl crisis, the, the drug crisis, what we are watching as no longer a Cold War with China. They are no longer an adversary. They are a, an enemy killing hundreds of thousands of Americans with their export of fentanyl and, and other deadly drugs. And this administration is in direct alignment with the Communist Chinese Party, and they are hand in glove uh, managing to, to uh, at least I think, uh, come to terms with the reality, the American people, that we have a puppet government, we have a shadow government, uh, we have a puppet president, a shadow government, and a, a, a immense challenges. And we have an education. I mean, we can't even look to it. We can't even break this down to short term and long term because the Marxist Dems have destroyed public education. They have indoctrinated an entire generation of our kids uh, who are to, to step up and do what? They don't even understand the history, the heritage, and the values of this country any longer. This is a deep, dark place uh, into which we've dug ourselves. I mean, there's no doubt this is an inflection point in the history of this republic and for the American people, and it's not going to get solved overnight. We've got, you know, we've got 10, 15, 20 years ahead of us that's uh, going to take to sort this thing out. It's going to be a long, tough struggle. I'm very optimistic that we can get there and get this thing sorted, but it is going to be very tough, and we're going to go through some massive, uh, we're going to hit some massive potholes and some massive speed bumps. So I think people, particularly people listen to your show and watch you, Lou, and have watched you over the last 30 or 40 years, War Room, people that follow President Trump, I think most of us realize this is not going to be easy and it's not going to be quick, but it has to be done. But every day gets, every day gets a little darker and it's because of, and it's right there. And what, what, what I think 
gets most people, the people the most upset. There is supposed to be a political party that's supposed to stand up to this, and you don't see it. You really just see, continue, you know, continued weakness, weakness, fecklessness, all of it, and it's uh, it's uh, it's scary. Well, it's scary right now. The Republicans have got to step up and take a stand on this stuff. Well, let's talk about that because you and I have a difference of view on on the debt ceiling discussion, and whether a a fragile a majority in the House is, is the ideal group of people to take this on. Speaker McCarthy saying that we're not going to pass a clean debt ceiling and we have to spend less money. Now, that's all uh, fine and good. Uh, I am a conservative. Uh, I am a capitalist. And I want the, I like prudent fiscal policy. At, uh, and I but that seems to me like a long ago dream that we, that it would even be achievable under these circumstances. And what is achievable is a resounding Republican defeat if they take on the issue of the debt ceiling uh, and take another beating by the Marxist Dems uh, as they have every time that they have challenged the debt ceiling. Uh, I always have considered it too late to have the discussion about spending. It's about uh, authorization. Uh, and the result, if they don't do it, will be, I think, another brutal beatdown by the Marxist Dems of the Republican Party, just as they are emerging as a powerful force uh, of, of countervailing power against these destructive uh, and anti-American Marxist Dems. You and I are definitely in two, <laughs> two different camps. <laughs> let, let me explain my No, because you've been doing this a lot longer many, many cycles of this. I think that the, and let's go back to the $6.8 trillion budget. I mean, and this is why I try to focus people. It's not the wokeness of SVB, although trust me, on the margins that added to it and it was not properly managed, the the uh, control of the currency and the FDIC should have seen this bank was insolvent uh, in last in last year, probably third or fourth quarter. It had 80, 185 to one, you know, Leverage ratio, a bank should have three to five times. They had 185 times. It was outrageous. But the central part of why we're in this jam is Biden spending that caused the over-the-top spending when aggregate demand was back. Uh, it fueled inflation that didn't fuel, fueled uh, the spending full inflation that then destroyed the government bonds that were all priced at, at low interest rates. Uh, and they had to get high interest rates to try to kill the inflation. We're in a vicious circle. If you if you you said you like prudence, you like prudent economic policy. I would love to have prudent economic policy. That train left the station, Lou. And I think the strongest argument I got against your position is they showed you what they are when they put up the six point eight trillion dollar budget. There's not one thing they cut. In fact, they gave the federal employees a five point two percent pay raise, and every program they increased. They didn't try to meet you at all. People, and I think it's incumbent upon us to make sure they understand the spending here is the problem. The spending is the, the over-the-top government spending in the deficits and how the deficits are financed are the being hard of the problem. I am actually so, the, the hardest position, and I think the correct position. Not one penny increase to the debt ceiling, not one penny. And they're going to have to come forward. And they just said, by the way, they just, in, their, in their budget, they have $3 trillion of taxes. Okay, What they don't, and they say it's going to cut the deficit. The deficit in their budget, if you extrapolate it out, is twenty-two trillion dollars in the next ten years. We're right. we're at fifty-five trillion uh, net, three trillion they take out in taxes, right? So we're over fifty trillion spending almost a trillion and a half dollars, two trillion dollars a year in interest payments. 
the um, it's not sustainable. It's not even close to being sustainable. And what we have going for us, the be- the best selling point we have the American people is Biden's inflation is destroying you. We've had 24 straight months of negative real earnings. The harder you work, the less money you have. You, you, you're, you're being eaten alive by Biden's inflation. The only way to stop it is to stop the spending. And the only way to stop the spending is use the leverage of the debt ceiling. You know, I could, we could, with the priority of payments, because there's enough cash coming in, this five trillion cash, if you prioritize payments, Steve Bannon doesn't need to raise the debt ceiling a penny. And you can manage this country. You can pay all the interest payments. You can, do, you can pay all the face amount what comes due. You can pay all Medicare and all Social Security, 100 cents on the dollar. And then you got what's left over. You got defense, and then you got Medicaid. You got to make some tough calls. And you're probably going to have a five or 10 percent cut to the budget. But that's the way you do it. The way you do it, you use the debt ceiling as your leverage, and then you're forced might- to either stretch payments yeah. of of things that are discretionary spending. Or you get into things like Medicaid that need to be, you know, you need to take a couple of trillion dollars out of these programs over 10 years. The only way to get to a balanced budget, and the only way we're going to survive is to get to a balanced budget, is you've got to make tough calls, and you've got to make them now. And I think the American people would have you back. You would not be able to demonize. And here's why. When this debt ceiling, uh, when the debt ceiling negotiations really have to take place, which will probably be in June, July, August, the country's economy is going to be a dumpster fire. And your solution is, hey, I can I can put out the fire, but here's how we have to put it out. But you you argue for uh, reason. <laughs> you argue for classic economics. You're arguing with madmen. Because here's why, and this is why I, I, I Lou, more of my friends in college are go, in your camp than in my camp. No, no, the, the more of are in your camp than my camp. And I say, you guys assume that there's rational people across the other side of the table because you're rational and talking about rational economic policy. It's not rational. If you see what they've done to date, this and that budget is a work of a madman. So how do you deal? The only way to deal with the irrational is to take a very hard, almost irrational step, and that is, hey, guess what? Not one penny increase in the debt ceiling. We're going to keep the debt ceiling, and we're going to figure out how we're going to use that as the leverage to, to manage around it. Now, it's a very think, hard position. I I understand that, but Lou, you it's, know it's me. A I like diff- it's a difficult position, part. but I, I I think it's an impossible position. And, and here's the reason, Steve. We when I said I believe in a prudent fiscal policy, believe me, I'm quite aware that the last you know half century have been problematic in that regard. But we don't have a choice here. There, this is a time when we are going to see people losing jobs not adding to the coffers of the uh, of the federal government through taxes uh, and, and revenue receipts. We have before us arguably the potential for the greatest, uh, I truly believe this, the greatest economic setback, uh, certainly uh, since the Great uh, Recession uh, and possibly uh, the Great Depression. Uh, we have to understand what's at stake here. Uh, these uh, we are looking at a right now a geopolitically a China that is on the march and it means to move. Uh, what do you let's do a thought experiment here? Let's assume that we go to war with China tomorrow. How comfortable is anyone in this country with an impaired puppet president as the commander in chief, with this assortment of? Uh, bizarre personalities that make up his cabinet. 
uh, with uh, secretaries of critically important departments like defense uh, and energy and homeland security and uh, justice. Uh, do we really want to go to war with those people in command of those departments? And what are we doing about it? And what is the Republican Party going to do? Because they've been the go-along, come-along party for quite some time. The only period of success for the Republicans in the last uh, arguably 30 years was a four-year interregnum directed by President Donald J. Trump. He's not there. He, they spend more time, the Republicans, trying to destroy him uh, and his candidacy for 2024 than they do strategizing on how in the world to compete with a political party uh, that poses as the Democratic Party uh, that has changed the rules uh, for elections, uh, for campaigns, uh, and uh, assuring the integrity of those elections, of which there is damn little. Uh, we have to look at this holistically, I think, and holistically it says to get bogged down in a quibble over $3 trillion in the next uh, 12 to 18 months it is just a bizarre and uh, perhaps a fatal blow to the Republican Party because you because, know because, the Democrats will beat them to death. But here's the thing you assume. You assume by your argument of, of basically compromising that the economy is going to get demonstrably better. My theory of the case is that you're wrong. Whoa, 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 whoa. Make... I didn't. I, no, no, no. I, I'm not. I think I said quite the opposite. I said we are on the verge we are facing the potential disaster that will be the equivalent of at least the Great Recession and certainly the possibility, the Great yeah. Depression. No, I agree. If we compromise with them on the debt ceiling, and because remember, to compromise on the debt ceiling, you're essentially compromising on their spending proposals. If we do that, the country clearly what is going to What the hell am I compromising on? I'm saying because let's you're, focus you're, on you're, the real you're, issues. You're, you're, no, but my point is, you're prepared to give them. You're prepared to give them relief on the debt ceiling, correct? Give them relief. Uh, by the way, uh, <laughs> Mitch McConnell no, no, gave them relief. No, Mitch McConnell gave them relief. What they will be in the political position is going. They will. The Republican Party will be the the, the party the of reneging what, on what the audience is hearing now is Lou and I off off screen off screen when we argue about this behind the scenes. No, okay, but if you you are you saying that you want and you would agree to a Biden increase in the debt ceiling to take it above the thirty? What I'm saying to you is. That money has already been agreed to by the Republicans in the Senate uh, and uh, signed off on by Mitch McConnell. And there is no way home from the fact that the Republican Party voted for that omnibus bill. Those are now the obligations of the United States government. Do I think there should be a negotiation where we could reduce spending? I'm saying that we can meet those obligations. Okay. I cannot what I'm saying is I cannot increase the debt ceiling one penny. I will meet all those obligations and never default on a U.S. security or the, the, the defaults off the table. It's impossible to default. In fact, because okay, we agree on that. I ran this exercise with Russ Vogt, who was deputy OMB director. We had planned for for a uh, hundred days to force McConnell and and Schumer and Pelosi's hand in 2017 in September when when the, the, the we had the debt ceiling issue then, and we could you you can pay. You can pay all the security, you can pay all the cash interest, 
You can pay any security that's coming due, you can pay it. You can pay all Medicare and Social – you can pay all Medicare and all Social Security, 100%, and I think most of the defense budget. You get them to the discretionary part, and particularly Medicaid, which needs to be gotten into – you got to make some tough calls. You're not going to make all those payments. But you, you but can't do that. Have, you can't do that to the American people. You right now cannot put the the Republican Party in the awful political position of denying the people who are most dependent upon the federal government in uh, in, in the worst way. Those people are taking Medicaid. The elderly who are dependent upon uh, their social security, the elderly who are dependent social, upon Medicare for their health. Medicare. Let me let me, let me finish this. Let me finish this. Yeah, go ahead. Because <laughs> this, go ahead. Republicans have bought into each one of these programs, and now the idiots, the idiot rhinos, want to go after social security. The Republicans will never win another damn election in this country if we let these fools proceed. That's off the table. Medicare and Social Security, I'll tell you, but I do think you have to get into Medicaid. I do agree. And by the way, this is the way you force decisions. If you could, if you can take back the $200 billion and not put additional $200 billion in Ukraine, you're going to be able to make more Medicaid payments, and you're going to be able to do, keep the Department of Education. My point is they're all trade-offs. Right now, we're, not, we're never facing trade-offs. We have to start making tough calls. I think the American people, seeing where the economy is and how it's not getting better, and you just can't throw money at it, are prepared to have people step forward and say, okay, here's a, here's a plan. It's going to be a tough plan, but here's a plan. Because, Lou, remember, the budget he just gave you has a $2 trillion annual deficit in it. The Fed, as you know, can't print that money. You can't monetize the debt because you're seeing how they're having difficulty right now. The, here's my point. The game is over. All you're advocating is continue to play the game. All my point is is that now's the time to you're step not- forward and say, <laughs> no, you, you keep doing that, Steve, but I, and I admire the debating technique, but you the know, reality is that's say, not what I'm saying. Right what now, I am I'm saying. Propose, I'm going to propose a tour. I think Lou Dobbs and I are going to go on tour. It's the Dobbs Bannon Show. We're going to take, no, I want to take it to a couple of take it. We'll take it to a couple of live venues and have this debate because, look, you've done this for, 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 for many, many decades. I, I'm, a, I'm essentially a newbie, it, but I do believe what's, that it's, it's it, essentially – to me, what's fundamentally interesting, it would be a debate between great friends uh, and people who have the same values, and we both want the same thing for this country. What I also yeah. want is to be certain that the Republicans don't get so enamored with the idea of this damn debt ceiling that they destroy the party, which is very well what they could do. When the party <laughs> represents our last best hope for for fixing these damn problems along the with the leader seeing, of the, the party, right Donald now, J. The, Trump. The people are seeing right now on this podcast, or well, my old and dear friend, before Donald Trump came on the scene, I spent many years trying to convince a younger Lou Dobbs that he should run he should run for, Did, he should run for the presidency. So, no, well, wait a minute, let's see that younger remark. Are you implying I'm too old now? <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're pro- what are you talking about? You're a kid compared to these other guys. No, in fact, after Trump wins in 2024, Lou Dobbs is my man for 28. I don't need, I don't need, uh, right. I don't need that. God bless you. God bless you, Steve. I, you know what? After all of the, uh, uh, the dust settles and everything. I think Steve Bannon has a nice ring to it for high office. Uh, <laughs> no, you no, keep overlooking no. the uh, the obvious talent. No, no, no. I'm 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 much better on my uh, on my show. 
I'm much better on my show. I, 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 I well, can, you I are can, great on your show. And, oh, I've got to say this too, Steve, because you mentioned it and I meant to say something. You were talking about your speech at CPAC. And I, want, and I sent a note to President Trump saying that Steve Bannon is now the greatest surrogate and, uh, and supporter of President Trump ever. Uh, that was a magnificent speech, uh, and I know that the left went nuts because <laughs> you were so articulate and compelling. Uh, but I really mean this, my friend. That was one hell of a stem winder, as we used to say, and uh, God bless you. I thank you. And, and Lou, you and I have talked about this mo- uh, often. Even I keep telling people, I said, even if you don't like the sound of Trump's voice, when you just look at where we are today and where this country is rapidly headed, and you look at the four years under Trump, it's in, it, there is no logical choice but Trump. I mean, Trump gave you four years of peace and prosperity. And one of the reasons is is that the criminals in, in Tehran, in uh, Beijing, in Moscow, the KGB, the CCP, the Ayatollahs, you know, throw in Turkey, Pakistan, these people both respected Trump, but uh, even more, they feared it. And that's why we had peace. And uh, his prosperity was just unparalleled. And this country is in such a such a, a, a crisis right now, and it's only getting worse, that the speech to me was pretty straightforward. Lay out the crisis, the financial and economic, and the geopolitical, and just go through some things that Trump accomplished, and he's talking about getting more done in the future. It's, it's a pretty straightforward it's a pretty straightforward argument, and uh, I, but I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was uh, it was from the heart. I didn't use notes, and um, I was uh, I was very satisfied with it. I think it laid out the president's case um, yeah, well, in, I, in in fifteen minutes. I, it was it was absolutely uh, even more terrific than what I've said. It's it just uh, a great a great speech, and in support of uh, a great president uh, at a uh, at a time in which it was and is much, much needed. Uh, Steve, we always give our guests the last word. Uh, your concluding thoughts, as I say, thank you for being with it's us here honor, today. We really appreciate it. It's an honor to have you as a friend, colleague, and uh, to come on the War Room and help us out there. I, I love your podcast and coming on there. And uh, I really got to think, here's the reason. You are a, you know, on political economy, you you come from the classic school. You, you've led this country for 40 years and explained it to people both at CNN and at Fox, uh, and, uh, and as you know, I'm, I'm a more right-wing populist nationalist, and I think, I really, I, I think we've got to think about doing this. We go around to a couple of places and do it live and, and, and then have the audience participate. Yeah, I think people would love it because uh, your, your yeah. fan base is massive, and uh, I think the War Room Posse would love to see us together. So um, we'll, we'll talk to your producer afterwards. We've got to think about this. A great idea, which I will automatically agree to anytime we can uh... – uh, get together and have uh, uh, a Coke or a, a hamburger or whatever uh, and get get a few ideas out there in front of the public, I'm all in. Uh, appreciate it, Steve. Uh, Steve Bannon, uh, the uh, extraordinarily successful host of the extraordinarily successful War Room. God bless you, and thanks for being with us here, Steve. Steve Bannon. Thanks, Lou. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being with us, everybody. Here tomorrow will be another great American, Mike Lindell, fighting for election integrity, battling for the country, spending tens of millions of his own money to expose what happened in the 2020 election and to assure it never happens again. That's tomorrow. Please be with us. Till then, God bless you and God bless America.